This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. This episode was recorded at the 2015 Fall Conference of the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts held here in Chicago, where I had the honor of spending some time with Jungian analyst and author David Shane. David has a background as an alcohol and chemical dependency counselor and as a clinical social worker. He is co-founder and past coordinator of the New Orleans Jungian Seminar and is currently an advisor to the C.G. Jung Society of Baton Rouge. He's a senior analyst in the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, as well as chair of their ethics committee. David speaks nationally and internationally on various aspects of Jungian psychology and is a Louisiana poet. His private practice, located in Covington, Louisiana, is centrally located between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. David's first book, Divine Tempest, The Hurricane as a Psychic Phenomenon, was published by Inner City Books in 1998. His second book, The War of the Gods and Addiction, C.G. Jung, Alcoholics Anonymous, and Archetypal Evil, was published in 2009 by Spring Journal. In his latest book, Always a Fighting Tiger, Memoirs of an Ordinary LSU Football Fan, was released last year by Tate Publishing and will be the topic of a future interview. Thanks so much for your time today, David. Sure. Glad to be here. So you're speaking at the conference today? Uh, I spoke last night, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And is that for analysts in training? Well, the... Uh, the conference is an invitational conference for, through the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, and we invited uh, people who were seriously interested in Jungian psychology to come uh, and get exposed to our society and presentations and see if they might be interested in, in uh, going further in right. terms of being candidates or whatever, you know. So they, and we've also invited them to, um, to in addition to the lectures all Friday and all day Saturday, uh, Saturday night tonight we we have a banquet and dance which is part of our regular celebration. So what did you speak about? What was your topic? Uh, my topic was um, <laughs> what does it mean to be a Jungian, and it's based on Wolfgang Gigrich's article in his book. Um, uh, the Neurosis of Psychology, and he enumerates uh, a whole series of interesting, what he calls identity styles, um, and I used that as a takeoff because I really wanted all, I figured all of these people would somehow identify themselves as Jungian, and I wanted uh, Gigrich, like Hillman, um, James Hillman, uh, is really a, a kind of a trickster guy, and um he gets people looking at things they normally don't, and and so he gets us gets us questioning our assumptions about our assumptions. And so I don't my I don't think a lot of Jungians have thought a lot about that. They just have assumed that. And I so it was interesting with Gigrich and and um, he basically puts puts out these different identity styles uh, as potentially what you might identify with. And then he also deconstructs them and talks about the shadow part of it and where they don't hold water, et cetera. So it was not that I wanted folks to 
arrive at some conclusion, but I wanted them to wrestle with the question. Oh, right. And so to raise a certain consciousness about that. So why we believe those things. Yeah. Yeah. And and where there's a problem with getting stuck in, um, if you're too orthodox young, then do you lose some of the individual individuation aspects of it? Or if you're too much of an individual, you have to have some connection to Jung, mm-hmm. or, or you, I don't see how you can call yourself Jungian. And then there's some people who get into what he calls the missionary personality style, where they're out trying to sell uh, Jung to the world. You know, their identity as a Jungian is in that proselytizing, you know. And then there are other identity styles that he, he mentioned, too, mm-hmm. you know. So what drew you to become a Jungian analyst? Well, I actually... Um, I picked up a, a man and his symbols, Jung's mm-hmm. autobiography, in college, in uh, in graduate school, and identified with so many of the things. It was sort of like, this guy understands. I've been through that. I've, I, I know what that's like. And some someone else was describing some of my concerns and journey, and it was it was Jung. And then I had a synchronistically a supervisor in graduate school at the University of Texas who was in training to be a Jungian analyst. And I had, for some unknown reason, I had sat down and recorded all my dreams that I could remember from my childhood on, not knowing why I was doing that. And then Elaine Mulchinoff was was my supervisor in in graduate school in social work, and she was also studying to be a Jungian analyst. Mm -hmm. And so we started working on my dreams and and then I realized that this was something that I probably really was going to want to pursue after I became a social worker mm-hmm. so that's what that's what got me going and young's young's uh appreciation for spirituality which I has always been a really very important thing to me what is Jung's relationship with spirituality? I think there's a misconception out there. Jung and religion, what's the truth about that? I mean, you probably get as many different opinions from Jungians as you would interview, but um, my view is that what, what, Jung, what Jung is talking about is that, that spirituality is universal. Mm-hmm. It's a universal part of being a human being, that we are all searching for meaning in our life and for something more than just the ego stuff, which he formulates in terms of, you know, the the self and the relationship to the self and individuation. But he contrasts that with religion in the sense that um, everyone basically has a spirituality component, but not everyone fits comfortably in terms of a religious tradition. Mm -hmm. So religions are supposed to uh, help people connect with their spirituality, Uh, Buddhism or or Christianity or or Judaism or or, uh, Muslim. And at their best, they really do help people connect with their spirituality. But sometimes they actually become stumbling blocks and and then some people can't relate to a religious tradition and they have to piece it together on their own mm-hmm. you know and so young basically presents the possibility um 
that anyone, whether in a religious tradition or out, can participate in the meaningfulness of spirituality, of what what is my life meant to be? What is the uniqueness of, of my destiny in this world? Which is what we all, according to Jungian psychology, ultimately are looking for and trying to work on. You know? Well, what would you say about somebody that says, well, I'm not religious and I'm not spiritual? If we all have that, is it there and they're not aware of it? I think I think it's it's because of what people's stereotypes are about right. religion and spirituality that they see it as a certain thing, mm-hmm. and if they've had a bad experience with with religion, then of course you know they 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 don't see that as helpful or valid, or even if they see spiritual as you know being new agey or you know or whatever their their projection stereotype is, but in Jung's sense. Spirituality is basically a, a human being who acknowledges that there are um, greater things influencing my life than um, that I'm in control of or I can see or whatever. In other words, if you just posit that there are things that affect you uh, in your life, and of course Jung would talk about the archetypes and other things, you know, in 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 his views, but just the fact that, you know, are there things unconsciously mm-hmm. that affect you? I mean, and, you know, some people don't believe in the unconscious, but all you have to do is sit down and thoughtfully look at at life and you realize that, that what is unconscious, it's not this big, gigantic, mysterious thing. It's just essentially whatever is, is I'm not aware of at the moment that is not seen, that is unknown to me now. That still is affecting me in in the present moment. Right. So even things we forget that we know mm-hmm. we forget, or or uh, part of the unconscious, you know. Yeah. Um, and sometimes those memories pop back up, and then we become conscious of it. But the unconscious does exist. It's you know it's, it, to me it's it's sort of a, an obvious thing if you just look at that. Well, of course there are things that are affecting us. Um, some things we remember at some points and we don't remember at other points. Well, where is that information? Right. Well, it's, it's not available to consciousness that makes it unconscious. Mm-hmm. So, um, when you start with that, then, um, the idea is that those avenues can be connections, um, to a greater exploration and us realizing that there's more going on than just what we can obviously see. And it, and it, it puts us on a search journey, which I think is, is the essence of spirituality for young is that there are, you know, sort of in the, the, the 12 step AA terms, it's a, that there are powers greater than ourselves out there. And there can be powers good and bad and positive and negative, but, it's just acknowledging that there are, and if I would say a legitimate spirituality is looking for us to connect with powers greater than ourselves that are positive and constructive and creative and yes. life-giving. There are other other aspects of things. Right. You know, so. so you mentioned uh, Jung's relationship with Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. and you addressed that in your book, The War of the Gods and Addiction. And when I started uh, mentioning that I was going to be interviewing you for this podcast, 
I started tweeting from the book and I had somebody write to me and say that they were completely unaware of Jung's connection with AA. I was wondering if you could summarize that a little bit. What was Jung's relationship with Bill W., one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous? There was a, a man, Roland, who was in analysis with Jung for about a year, and he was a, quote, hopeless alcoholic. I right. mean, he was uh, on the way to the whole degenerative, it was going to kill him, he, he couldn't. So he went into analysis with Jung, and uh, he got sober. And, and then he relapsed, as many alcoholics do. Mm-hmm. And so he went back to Jung and and asked, uh, you know, what, was looking for a follow-up, you know, will, will this help me get sober? And Jung basically said to Roland, you know, I've done everything I can for you, um, and I really, there isn't really anything to offer, but from Jung's experience, it was like, I would suggest that you would go on a spiritual journey and, and put yourself in a religious atmosphere and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. Because Jung had realized that that, that that kind of thing was possible. Maybe he had actually seen it at that point. I don't know. So Roland went, uh, got involved in the, um, the Oxford movement, which was helping to, which, which is a religious movement at the time that was helping people to get sober. And a lot of the principles of the Oxford movement actually are incorporated in the 12 steps of AA. So what happened was that Roland got sober through the Oxford movement. He helped another uh, alcoholic individual, uh, Ebby T, get into recovery, get sober. Ebby T was actually a good friend of Bill W.'s. And Bill W. knew that Ebby T. was as bad off as Bill was in terms of the drinking, the alcoholism, and the destructive aspects of it. So Ebby T. came and was sober, and Bill was amazed. And so gradually through Ebby T., uh, Ebby T. helped Bill W. get sober, and then Bill W. learned about the connection with Jung. And so basically, Jung unknowingly took the first three steps of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and Jung recognized that both he and Roland were powerless over the alcohol. Right. Encouraged Roland to put himself into a situation where there was hope, which is the second step, you know, that there is a power that can help us. Mm-hmm. And then the third step, which is to take action, you yeah. know. So without knowing it, Jung took the first three steps, and Bill W. was so brilliant when he when he helped begin to formulate the AA principles, he realized how central those first three steps were. Well, fast forward a bunch of years, Jung lost contact with Roland, didn't know this kind of stuff. The AA movement begins in the 1930s and begins to develop, and people are getting sober and staying sober. And um, about uh, actually six months before Jung's death in 1961, Bill W. wrote Jung a letter thanking him for his unrealized involvement in the creation of AA. And Jung wrote back immediately uh, his letter, which had become the famous Bill W. Carl Jung letters, about uh, what, that was, what that was all about. And those are in your book, those letters. Yes, yes. In fact, the, the, that's the, those letters are really the template of, of uh, take off on that, because I think the two, the, in the two letters is just a, 
a tremendous richness of concepts and what's and what Jung's thoughts on on addiction and uh, and also uh, Bill W's uh, in terms of of Jung's contribution to to the situation. Wasn't it Jung that said you have to have some sort of spiritual awakening in order to overcome this? Jung would encourage anybody and everybody to have a spiritual spirituality in their life that is to connect with the archetype of the self to to be living the meaning of their life and their individuation but you know a lot of people don't really want to do that and are not interested in that and they're sort of caught up in in all kinds of other stuff you know the world's got plenty of distractions and and so if they don't do that it's not necessarily catastrophic in that um <laughs> They may just wind up living a pretty shallow, superficial life, okay? And they may be happy with that. But for an alcoholic or an addicted individual, if they don't get spirituality, the addiction is going to kill them. And so it's life and death for an alcoholic or an addicted person. And so, yes, the spirituality aspect was absolutely essential um, for the person to be able to get sober and to be in recovery and to to transform and to heal eventually, yeah. But what you just said about when I asked about the spiritual awakening, you worded it a lot differently than I did, and I really like what you said because that might be a turnoff to some people. Well, I don't, I don't want to have a spiritual awakening. You know, I don't want to have a religious experience. But you didn't explain it that way. Would you? Do you remember what you said <laughs> no. about the self having a relationship with the self as the archetypal? Oh, right. In other words, the the idea of having a relationship in the Jungian sense to the archetype of the self puts us on an individuation journey, which is inherently that is spirituality yes. in Jung's concept, which has got nothing to do with some of the. It not not automatically to do with religions and and things that pass for spirituality in the culture and in the collective. It may or may not have things to do with that, but it's really about the experience that a person is having with something that heals and transforms and makes a difference in their life in terms of bringing life to their life. And um in terms of addiction, if it's just the opposite that it, that if they're a person is truly psychologically addicted and they they don't have the spiritual principle, then my belief is, and this is part of what I talk about in the book, is that to be a true addiction psychologically, mm-hmm. it the the addictive behavior, whatever it is, has to have the ability to kill you. So, you know, eating too much chocolate is probably not an addiction, though right. it might not be good for you, you know, right. or jogging a lot. Or, you know, people talk about positive addictions, which I think just muddies the waters up, you know, okay. that people, it confuses the word, you know, the, 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 the traditional meaning of addiction. Now, the, the original meaning of addiction, addictus, was was to be devoted to. It literally translates to be oh. devoted to. So they actually, in the medieval t- times, they used to use the word to say a person could be addicted to God. So they're devoted to God. But in, in, our, in our modern usage, it has lost that kind of meaning. And it's usually seen 
as something really destructive and pathological. And when we talk about positive addictions and addiction addictions, I think it confuses people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm okay with using a different word. I, I, I talk about in my book that I'm a, I'm really not wed to the terminology and yeah. even theories. To me, uh, theories are of value to the extent that they they hold water or that that, it, that a person's experience is validated through the theory, that it reflects something about the reality of a phenomenon. And if it doesn't reflect the reality, then eh, maybe it's not that good a, a theory or the term isn't that good. So I'm not wed to the terms. I think the terms are helpful if they can describe elements uh, that reflect on what, what, the, what the phenomenon is that we're, that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a background as an alcoholism chemical dependency counselor, Mm -hmm. and then you became a union analyst. So in your practice, are people who are addicts and seeking recovery, do they seek you out because of your background as a... Well, I have have a very eclectic practice. I have people who see me because I'm a union analyst and they want analysis, and, Mm -hmm. and that's fine. And I have people who see me because uh, I used to work in other areas with adolescents or families or okay. couples. And, and, then, and I also have this background in terms of alcoholism, chemical dependency, and there's some people who come, come to me because of that. Um, I usually don't work in primary recovery with people. Mm-hmm. You know, I, su- I think it's better if they go get sober and right. go to AA or a treatment program or something and, and come back, and I, I tell them this, you know, do that, get sober, and come back in six months, and let's see what clears up and what gets better just from getting sober. Right. And then, then if you want to work on why you why you were drinking or what the need is that that was fulfilling for you, or you want to go into early developmental stuff, you want to work on your dreams, then it's going to be of a lot more benefit. So I do have a number of people in my practice who are in recovery and are, are there to see me for this uh, more sort of uh, advanced way of trying to look at things, that they're not trying to establish their sobriety. Um, I, I think that it's better to to do that when you have more support than just, you know, just one person outpatient once a week. Oftentimes that's not enough right. for, to get a person going, and so I think they most people need more. So when you're treating someone who is is currently addicted or recovering addict how can union psychology be applied to that how do you do you look at the addiction symbolically i look at the addiction as um you know part of i mean what i really wrote about in my my book on addiction was um the psychodynamics of addiction and and i got to that through the aa experience gave me a lot of information, but I was really working to try to translate things so that people who weren't in AA or, uh, you know, had other models, didn't have to be true believers in those kinds of things, could understand what was going on, what occurred in the development of it to create an addiction, and then why AA is so effective in the 12 Steps because of what it addresses in the inherent nature of the addiction, I actually worked backwards. I, I realized that AA was the most effective 
um, intervention in regards to to alcoholism and addiction that came along. Before that, it was pretty much a degenerative, hopeless situation. Yeah. So then I was curious in terms of, as a phenomenologist, well, what is it in terms of the ingredients in the 12 steps in AA that allows it to, to be effective? Just like if there was some uh, hopeless, incurable disease that we had, and then somebody comes along with something, and then there's 30% remission, or, you know, you say, well, what is it in, in, in that you know, that attempt at cure or whatever, that treatment, what, is, what are the ingredients that are, are affecting what in terms of this uh, disease or whatever? Well, so it got me thinking about in, um, so AA is effective and nothing else was before in terms of alcoholism and then by extrapolation addiction. So something about what the effectiveness of AA should tell me working my way backwards to something about what is the nature of, a, of an addiction psychologically. And what I came to was that, uh, the, that to have a true addiction, it, I have a definition of addiction that yeah. says it, it has to be a behavior, that a destructive behavior that takes over completely the person psychologically, their their thinking, their judgment, their I mean it, that it becomes the prime directive in the psyche. It can't be secondary. The other aspect that I think in it, of addiction to make it an addiction is it has to have the ability to kill you. Mm-hmm. So otherwise, it's something else. It might be a bad habit. It might be an obsessive compulsive thing. It might you know be abuse. It might, but if it right. has to have those ingredients to do that. But in addition to that, and, and, in, and because of that, what I formulated was that there are two aspects to addiction. There's the, the sort of personal aspect, which is the story and the reason why each individual winds up reverting to addiction. What, and, and most of the time, it's what I call um, the addictive behavior somehow starts off as, an, as a way of helping a person to cope with living. So it's almost like self-medication. And sometimes it works really well for a while. You know, a double martini every night when you come home helps you relax. You know, maybe you need to relax. But, of course, there are better ways to do that. Um, But in and of itself, it's not just the personal because, um, you know, that could be a bad habit or whatever. Maybe the person can still control it. But there's an aspect of an addiction that I hypothesize that is actually archetypal. Mm -hmm. And the aspect of the archetype that I saw in addiction is archetypal shadow, archetypal evil, which is not integratable, not redeemable, not transformable. And some people have really had a problem with accepting that. And I've tried to tell folks that I I didn't invent that. And I, I go to pains in my book to demonstrate that there are other people who have talked about that concept, but there are very few places where anybody has actually said, well, here's where it is or where, where you can find it psychologically. It's sort of like it exists, but there's not a lot said about it. At least it hadn't been until, you know, maybe, maybe afterwards, after I wrote my book, maybe there have been more written about it. But when that archetypal shadow, archetypal evil clicks in, with the potentially addictive behavior, the personal stuff, then the true addiction comes into existence. And 
the aspect of it of the of the, the archetypal shadow, archetypal evil, is the part that I looked at in terms of what what the folks in AA's experience was that if once you crossed over the line and you were addicted, you couldn't cross back. Yeah. And so I thought, well, what is that? Mm-hmm. You know, well, this is something that is not. Uh, you know, integratable, redeemable, transformable. And so, you know, that's that's part of why the advice from AA is, you know, don't drink because you can activate the addiction, which will then become really destructive and take over. And in my, my, my view, will ultimately take over everything and everything will be sacrificed on the altar of the addiction, including a person's very life, you know. Um, so where did you get that idea of archetypal shadow, archetypal evil being present in addiction? Well, it was actually from the the Carl Jung, Bill W. Letters. Yeah. Carl Jung uh, went on record. Uh, he didn't say much about addiction previous to, the, to that letter, but mm-hmm. what he said was that he believed that there was an aspect uh, of alcoholism. I, I'm trying to remember the, the exactly uh, the formulation of the words. No, I, I asked you that because you said that you, you got some backlash about the book, and you're saying, hey, I didn't make this up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, some people had never heard of this. Because they have had a traditional view, really, uh, that most things that, that young talks about in the Jungian psychology are aspects of the psyche that we need to integrate, the shadow and the anima and animus and our complexes and those kinds of things. But there are aspects in the psyche of elements that are not integratable and not redeemable. And and this is what I think archetypal shadow, archetypal evil is about, um, and that we have to deal with in a different way, you know, that we... Uh, von Franz and Jung and others have talked about you you can't get into trying to integrate that. It's sort of like letting the vampire bite you, you know, put its teeth into you. I mean, you or to try to work out a deal with the devil that, you know, uh, that that's there's no way that you can do that. So you're saying we can't develop a relationship with that archetypal with energy. That, with that archetypal material that it is so inherently uh, destructive um, and and damaging to the human being that it, it we really need to try to protect ourselves from it. Right. And most people don't really even like thinking that there are things out there like that, mm-hmm. you know. But the experience with, you know, for people who you know, who are recovering and have experience in AA. I mean, I know people who were in recovery in AA, started drinking again, and couldn't stop and are dead now, you know? Yeah. And so when I talk to people about my concept in this book and all, I mean, they, they who are in recovery in AA, they have no problem relating to what I'm talking about in the archetypal evil, archetypal aspect of addiction. It's the other people who who don't want to believe, they don't want to believe in the devil, and they don't want to believe that there are things out there that are so inherently destructive to us. Jung says, he talks about this this aspect that he, he's not calling archetypal, archetypal evil, mm-hmm. but 
he describes it and then says is aptly called the devil. And yes. most people misunderstand that, and he knows how misunderstood that concept is. But he was alluding to that he believed there was an, an inherently archetypal evil principle in addiction, um, and that the, the antidote uh, to that in NAA was the spirituality of the program. And he talked about the three things that could address that were um, a grace from above, uh, the higher power NAA concept, the protection of the of a loving human community, which is the fellowship that AA provides. And then he talked about the the education of the mind in a, a non-traditional, uh, rational way. He was talking about the 12 steps and, and people basically confronting their shadows and taking responsibility from themselves and being educated psychologically, right. you know. Um, and that those three things could be what would get a person uh, into recovery um, that, w- that would be the antidote to um, the addiction and to both the personal and the archetypal aspects of the addiction. And, and I would like to add about the first step that the higher power doesn't necessarily have to be God. It could be any higher power, anything that right. is great, a power greater than us. Oh, that's right. Some people have trouble with a theistic idea of uh, a higher power, but the higher power could be the the AA group. It could be yeah. it could be your sponsor. It could be um, the twelve steps. It, you know, um, in fact, even if you you don't even frame it in terms of AA. You just, you know, I mean, you have to admit that there's a higher power if you admit admit that you're addiction, addicted and you can't control it, that, that that power is greater than yourself. But you're really calling for positive spiritual powers to help counteract that power that's greater than you that is the addiction. You use the term neutralize. So what can people do to neutralize that energy? We can't have a relationship with it. We can't get rid of it. Well, it seems that the addiction strengthens and feeds itself, actually much like a hurricane, by the person getting the person to participate more in their addictive behavior. Mm-hmm. It gets stronger and stronger the more it can get a person to do that. So conversely, if a person... Um, is able to, for whatever reason, to refrain from for a while from their addictive behavior, there's a better chance that the teeth of the addiction are loosening or that they can get into their recovery, sobriety, abstinence, etc. So, but the idea is that since archetypal evil can't be integrated and transformed and cured, mm-hmm. and that seems to be an inherent aspect of addiction, um, what can we do with it? Well, what, what we seem to be able to do uh, with the higher power and the spiritual aspect of the AA program, the 12 steps, is that we can neutralize that evil and, and that containment, contain it, uh, not destroy it completely. And this seems, again, based on the phenomena of, uh, of AA folks and their alcoholism experience, that it's like those people who 
who were sober for 10, 15, 20 years and then had a relapse and couldn't reestablish their sobriety. Yeah. So their addiction wasn't eliminated or cured. It was basically neutralized yes. while they were in their recovery. But when they started their addictive behavior again or they took a drink, it reactivated the addiction. Well, if the addiction was destroyed and cured, it, it couldn't be reactivated. Right. It had to continue to exist. You know? Yeah, and I think that's why AA um, is about cold turkey. You can't just drink socially or casually. Right, because uh, I mean, if, if you're if you're abusing alcohol and 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 you still have the ego power, self control, willpower ability to to modify it, then I would suggest you do that you know but for a person who's addicted they don't have that ability and that that is the problem and would you say this applies to drugs as well not just alcohol yeah i would say it applies in from my view it applies to to anything that can be an addiction people ask me well what what is it it isn't i said well take my definition and if if a behavior applies in that way that it takes complete control and it has the ability to kill you then it qualifies as an addiction okay. could work be an addiction yeah uh, could food be an addiction yeah could gambling be an addiction yeah could sex be an addiction yeah can alcohol be an addiction yes can drugs be an addiction but there may be other things that could be addiction too if if, if they if that behavior took over complete control of the psyche and had the ability to kill the person um, right. Because somehow, you know, the archetypal shadow, archetypal evil locks up with whatever the potentially addictive behavior is, you know, and so it uses that in, in terms of its own, for its own agenda. And in the book, you equate the 12 steps with Jung's process of individuation. Yes. I think the the first three steps are about the the establishing of the connection with the self that Jung talks about is necessary. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the, the other steps, uh, in fact, the majority of the steps, uh, four through ten, I think it is, I think, are really all about what's called shadow work in Jungian psychology, the yeah. traditional, you know, looking at your complexes and your shadow and taking responsibility for yourself, which actually addicted folks uh, because of the addiction, have been avoiding. And that's why those steps are so important, that you do an inventory, you take amends, you confess to someone else, you take responsibility for it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last two steps are uh, in AA are about the continuing, uh, in a Jungian sense, the con continuing connection with the self um, in your life and, and, and that you continue to live by those, those principles, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's very similar that you know the twelve steps and and they're not identical, uh, but that the work we do in Jungian psychology and analysis, a lot of it is is very very similar to what AA is encouraging. You also point out in the book one of the sayings in AA is whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get and to stay sober is what you do, and. What I've personally seen with people who get sober and then go back out and then get sober and go back out is 
if I might say, they're not doing whatever it takes. They're still hanging out with people that are drinking. They're still going to clubs and they're trying not to drink. They're not doing whatever it takes. And I just want to say that in, in my own Jungian analysis, there were changes that I wanted to make in my life. And I used that principle. I had to do whatever it took. I had to distance myself from relationships, from places, from things in order to work on myself. Yeah, and, and, you know, in AA, their experience, when a person isn't successful or not willing to do whatever it takes, they often say they really haven't taken step one, which involves the collapse of the ego. Yeah. And, and the ego, which is under the control of the addiction and, and turns it over like we would in Jungian, you know, relativizing the relationship uh, between the ego and the self, in other words, to create that access. And, you know, in spiritual terms, uh, you know, other places, I mean, we've talked about, um, you know, doing God's will. We've talked about, you know, uh, becoming one with the Buddha within. I mean, we have lots of terms in other traditions that talk, that basically describe this phenomena of putting the ego out of commission as the main control and to to seek wisdom and power and and uh, grace from someplace in the Jungian sense from the self, as opposed to just trying to do it all with the ego. Uh, in terms of alcoholism and addiction, you you have to have that collapse of that ego uh, that has been infected by the addiction, so that something else can emerge, and that's the connection. Um, with whatever that higher power can be for that person, which allows for something really different to happen. As long as the addicted ego is continuing to make the decisions and call the shots and make the judgments, it's going to keep going back one way or the other to getting the person to continue in the addiction because that's inherently um, what the addiction wants. I mean, it's, uh, you know, in AA, they talk about it, and I think they really are on to it in my sense. Um, they talk about alcoholism being cunning and baffling. Yeah. So it's like, what? You know, yeah. a disease is cunning and baffling? Well, yeah, there's more to it than mm-hmm. just a disease in a, in a traditional sense. There is almost a, con- there maybe is a consciousness in addiction which has its own agenda, that we have to take into consideration. And and it will use and manipulate in a cunning and baffling way to get the person back to their their addictive behavior, to participate in it. You know, I had a um this is in a diff a different addiction issue, but there was a, a woman who was working with me and a number of years ago who uh, had an eating disorder, was addicted to food. And so she's struggling with that and she She's starting to have compulsions to to binge, and so she says, "Well, I I realized I needed to get out the house and to go someplace where um, I would have a better chance of you know uh, of not succumbing to the desire, whatever the compulsion." So where does she go? She goes to the mall to the food court. (laughs) And so, of course, she goes to that. So her addiction manipulated her to go to the absolutely worst place for her. So she binged terribly. And, you know, and, and, but my point there is 
that that's a good indication of the manipulativeness and the cunning and bafflingness of the addiction, that it's going to try back door, side door, whatever way to get you. You know, if you're sober, well, let's have a drink to congratulate you on your sobriety, <laughs> right. you know. Or if you're really down, well, you know, let's have a drink. Let's, you know, what the heck, you know, let's let's cut this with with something, you know. Or uh, so successes or failures, or, you know, like folks in AA to say, you know, when, you know, people drink because the sun comes up and because it's cloudy and because it, the sun goes down, <laughs> you know, basically the addiction is going to try to use any anything it can to get the person uh, to, to start using again. Yeah. So we would be remiss today if we didn't talk about your book about hurricanes, because as we speak, there is what's being reported as the largest hurricane on record. Is it Hurricane Patricia? Patricia, I think that's right. Is yeah. uh, in the Gulf of Mexico? Well, no, it's actually... Off of ah. the, the the coast of, of Mexico in the uh, Pacific Ocean, coming coming ashore okay. as we speak, as far as I know, making landfall in uh, on Mexico. In Mexico, yeah. yeah, and then supposed to be heading over to Texas and the U.S. Okay. Uh, it'll be well diminished by then, but yeah. To also touch on your book about the hurricane as a psychic phenomenon, what did you mean by that? I had. Several clients, I mean, I, I'm from Louisiana and grew up in New Orleans, and yeah. so we, we have a lot of experience with hurricanes, and so I was real familiar with it, and I, as a kid, I, you know, was real excited and realized how powerful they were and and energizing, and the whole world changes when a hurricane comes to a community. But I had clients who were who were having dreams about hurricanes um, in situations that weren't about an actual hurricane existing coming in from the Gulf or something, it was like the psyche appropriated the image, the symbol of the hurricane to use to, to represent something for that person psychologically. So it got me curious about, well, just what is the psychological significance of hurricanes? And so I, I started looking at the history and people's reactions psychically when they actually come, but also started gathering dreams from people who had what I called symbolic dreams with the hurricane in mm -hmm. terms of what was that pointing to. My hypothesis is that the when a hurricane appears for a person, uh, and it's not about a real hurricane that's existing, but is a symbolic that it's usually at a very pivotal point in a person's life. It's a big, big dream. Mm -hmm. And that the, that the hurricane seems to represent the self in a very, very primitive way, the archetype of the self in okay. a really primitive way that, that has both tremendously destructive and creative mm -hmm. aspects like the hurricane does. And a lot of people always just, they just think of the, the destructive aspects of the hurricane, yeah. but the hurricane actually redistributes heat around the planet. It brings moisture and to places that don't have it. I mean, the, the whole sort of climate ecosystem actually needs the hurricanes to deliver things that, that are essential. Species are distributed in different places around because of hurricanes. And um, so there are very positive aspects that come. Hurricanes sweep away old, uh, destructive, decaying things so mm -hmm. that new New stuff can appear, you know. Um, so there's a whole resurrection element oh, involved right. in, in actual hurricanes. 
Well, when a person psychologically has a hurricane uh, appear in their dream, it usually is that they are at a pivotal time in their life about something that they need to decide how they're going to handle, that depending on how they respond to it, could have tremendously destructive aspects or tremendously creative aspects that fuel them. Um, decisions, major decisions in terms of career, um, continuing to stay with a partner in marriage or, uh, you know, big moves away. And so I found that the dreams, the hurricane dreams had, had that aspect symbolically, um, which were pointing to the archetype of the self in the in a in a very primitive way, mm-hmm. um, and then I talked about the other aspects of the hurricane that, you know, people's reactions to when an actual hurricane hits, it sort of brings out the best and the worst also in people. Right. You know, you get, you have profiteers and people exploiting other people, taking advantage, and then you have tremendously selfless acts of heroism and sacrifice that people are making for perfect strangers, you know. You saw some of that with Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans uh, 10 years ago, you know, that that kind of both the terrible destructive aspects and looting and degeneration of of human behavior. And then you also have these tremendously wonderful acts of kindness that other people were doing for, you know, those of us affected by Katrina. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I did discover after I wrote the book was, and it it leans on how tremendously psychologically, I mean, people relate to hurricanes as if it's it's a person. I mean, it has a name, and people write signs to the hurricane as if it can, you know, somehow have a consciousness that can relate to that. But after a major hurricane the statistics indicate that the suicide rate goes up 33 percent in in the population where the major hurricane has hit and stays up for two years because the hurricane is so disruptive to people's lives and and uh, creates such chaos uh, societally and 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 individually, you know, effects on marriages and jobs and 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 survival. That um, that the stresses of that wind up in people literally uh, making life and death decisions, you know, and sometimes making the decision to kill themselves. So the suicide, and that's a pretty tremendous statistic for uh, for the the normal rate to jump thirty three percent after a major hurricane. As a union analyst. What can you say about that? I mean, that's devastating. Well, I mean, guess the way that I look at it is that that the actual hurricane, that that represents the tremendously destructive aspect of the hurricane and of the dark side of the self, if you want to look at that, that it is so powerful, has so much effect, that that is what it is on the negative side and on the positive sides it it can like if a person consciously works with the energy of the say the symbolic hurricane then they that can fuel psychically their their life for years to come there's so much energy in that and just like in in you know hurricane katrina um which was terrible in new orleans 
but it has allowed for tremendous new growth and recovery and rejuvenation and new life in New Orleans, which was already a very alive city, but with new elements that were brought in because yes. of the hurricane. So once again, there's those that positive and negative, destructive and creative aspects that are carried with it. Do you have anything coming up that you'd like to tell us about? Uh, <laughs> I did write a, a, my most recent book, which is not Jungian, um, but it's uh, it's uh, sort of my my memoir. Uh, I'm a big LSU football fan, and LSU football is a very very big thing in the psyches of people in Louisiana, oh, yeah. and has been for many many years. And I wrote this book on uh, called "Always a Fighting Tiger: Memoirs of One Ordinary LSU Football Fan." And I basically tell numbers of stories, some of them Jungian and informed by Jungian thought, mm-hmm. um, about the influence and how LSU football has been involved in in my life and in my family and 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 in different aspects all, all the way up until the present. Well, I would love to talk to you again about that because I'm fascinated about fandom. Let's sure, speak sure. to you about yeah, that. that in the I future. Would, I'd love to do that. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank David. you, Laura. It's uh, been fun talking to it's you. It's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed spending time with David, and I'm looking forward to speaking with him about his life as an LSU football fan. You can find links to all of the books that were mentioned today on the website speakingofyoung.com. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to download for free. You can also listen to the podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher. Next week, I'll be traveling to Zurich, Switzerland to visit the places where Jung lived and worked. I'll also be conducting several interviews for this podcast, which I hope to have available for you in December. While I'm there, I expect I'll be posting a lot of updates on social media. You can find me on Twitter at JungianLaura. So with eternal gratitude to Hilton Hotels, Sean Lau, Charlie Arthur, Diane Braden, and Carl Gustav Jung, and special thanks to Carolyn S., Nita S., and Bill W. This is Laura L., and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. Speaking of Jung